0: I've been looking forward to talking about this man all day. One of the great heroes of the Bible, oh, Samson. You know, one of the things I find most touching about people like Samson and Abraham and David and Paul and Peter is that the Bible shows us that they were imperfect, just as we are imperfect. You can tell that the Bible was not written by men for men. It was written by God, using men inspired of the Holy Ghost to write it down. Otherwise, certainly kings like David wouldn't have put in the incident of his peeping, being a peeping Tom and doing all the things he did. And Samson wouldn't have had recorded what, what he got up to. And Abraham wouldn't have had recorded that he had told a lie. These were fallible human beings as we are fallible and God understands he understands that we need him he understands that w- without him we are completely lost and when we look at the lives of these heroes of the Bible we see that they were imperfect they messed up but they got right with God and his terms and in there lies that wonderful lesson As long as we can breathe, as long as we have sanity of thought to make a decision for ourselves, it's not too late to come to Jesus. If you will be turning in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and starting at verse 17. Wherefore, come ye out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And let's compare this verse with Judges chapters 13 to 16 where we find the account of Samson and it's an account the Bible doesn't tell these these are not stories these are accounts these are not myths the account of Samson is an illustration of this text the principle of which Samson's life is a sad embodiment is set forth in the symbol of Nebuchadnezzar's dream too we can find a likeness there The iron and clay mixed together, and the image partaking of the strength of the iron, but also, alas, of the weakness of the clay. For this is the story of Samson. Divine strength mingled with human weakness. Supernatural power hindered by the touch of earth and the taint of sin. The account of Samson forms one of the closing chapters of the period of the judges of Israel, known as the Dark Age of Israel. Now he had godly parents and the Lord appeared in a vision and promised the birth of a son accompanying it with the most solemn injunctions firstly that the mother should be separated according to the law of the nazarites before his birth and then that the child that should be born should also be a nazarite from his birth and be separated unto god from his mother's womb in due time the child was born and he was carefully brought up according to the divine command. His hair was allowed to grow in perfect naturalness, and he abstained from wine and all strong drink, and lived a life of abstinence and purity. On arriving at manhood, the Spirit of God began to move upon him in the form of extraordinary physical strength. Along with this began the peculiar temptation of his life, a tendency to self-indulgence and unhallowed associations with the heathen daughters of the Philistines. This at last became the snare that would bring ruin to him. His first error was to set his affections upon a Philistine maiden of Timnah, and to marry her contrary to the advice and wishes of his parents and indeed the command of our holy God. On his way to her home, he performed the first great exploit of his life, the slaying of a lion in a thicket by the way. This marriage, however, was a sad one, and ended in the murder of his bride and the family, her family, by the Philistines. This was followed by a retaliation by Samson upon the enemies of his country and the burning up of their cornfields by an army of blazing foxes that he sent across the country. for many years he was the absolute terror to his enemies. They were petrified of him. He used to boldly visit their towns and their hamlets, usually in some doubtful associations with one of their women, but he defied their attempts to take him, until at last, through the snare of Delilah, to whom he had rashly given his love and confidence, he was betrayed into revealing the secret of his strength and fell into the hands of his foes, who bound him, and put his eyes out, they blinded him. And they enslaved him for the rest of his life in a solitary dungeon. This hero of Israel, this judge appointed by God, this man who had been an unholy terror to these unholy heathens, had been captured. There he deeply repented of his sin and his folly and God heard his prayer and gave him one more opportunity to use his colossal strength for the Lord his God and for his country. And in the last act and tragedy of his life, he brought about the pulling down of the vast amphitheater in which he had been led forth to make sport of by the Philistines. Here he is, the champion of Israel, the champion of Jehovah, made a fool in the presence of their gods. And he and his enemies together would perish at last. But those that he slew at his death were more than all those he slew in his life. He passed out of Jewish history. A marvelous example of what God might have done with a thoroughly separated man. And yet of what self-indulgence and sin can do to hinder the most glorious promise and the most gracious purpose of God. We see a bright beginning full of glorious promise and possibility. We see God choosing a human life and revealing a high and mighty purpose for a human career. And then we see all that hindered and defeated by earthliness, selfishness and sin. What more could God have done to show his purpose of love and blessing? Twice he had come in vision to announce the birth of Samson. And again and again he manifested his supernatural power in the life of his servant. And the mighty possibilities which he was ready to accomplish. If only Samson, if only he could have found an obedient and faithful instrument in Samson. And yet all this was baffled and hindered by the disobedience and folly of the man whom he had sought to bless and to use. It is a very solemn and awful thing to think of how we can hinder God's purposes of love for us. O ye who have been born of holy parentage, ye whose childhood has been envisioned with every holy association and every godly influence, ye who are the children of a mother's prayers and a father's faith, ye whose early days have been overshadowed by the very wings of the Almighty and whose inner consciousness has felt the touch of heaven and heard the whisper of your high calling, remember that after all this, You may by your willfulness and your folly destroy them by your own, destroy even your own blessing and hear your master say at last, as he said of his own of old, how often I would, how often would I, but ye would not, Matthew 23, verse 37. We have to make ourselves available to God to surrender to him. Once again, for it to be all of him and none of us, to cast our doubts before him, and to trust in the mighty hands of the mighty God. This is the God that made heaven and earth, that knit us carefully in the bellies of our mothers. This is the God that split the Red Sea. This is the God that brought his enemies low, who rose from the dead on the third day This is the God that gave us his holy word. If he was able to do all of that, and he was, is he not also able to take our lives and make something noble of them? Something pleasing to him. We see the necessity of a life of separation. If we would become the vessels of almighty God through his word, we would achieve God's highest blessings. The Nazarite under the Mosaic institutions was the peculiar type of a life of separation. He was set apart from his childhood to be dedicated unto the Lord and separated from all earthly and sensual indulgences. Just as the priest represented the idea of nearness to God, the Nazarite and the Levite represented the idea of separation to God, dedication to God. This is one of the profoundest principles of God's whole plan of redemption. From the very beginning, God purposed to separate a peculiar people unto himself. By peculiar, it means special. A people dedicated to him. God says so, and that's enough. We shall do it. We see this in the separation of Abel from Cain, from Noah, of Noah from a wicked world of Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees, of Isaac, of Isaac from, from Ishmael, of Israel and indeed the church of Christ, which just means the called out ones. The very name in Greek, ekklesia, signifies the separated ones. And it is always in the feminine in Greek. That's no coincidence. We are the bride, singular, of Christ Jesus. That's how tender is his love towards us, of his care for us. He fought for us, he died for us, he came back from the dead for us, and he reigns for all eternity for us. The strength of Samson was as nothing compared to the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ. We sing that song, he could have called 10,000 angels. Indeed he could. But the power of Christ alone could have stopped it. But he chose to go through That terrible suffering, and he was thinking of us. Remember, God knows all. He knows all from the end to the beginning. It's an interesting thought, but it's true. As he died for us, he was thinking of us. He knew each and every one of us. We were made for a purpose. There are no accidents. We were made with love. And we must look upon each other as God looks upon us, his precious ones. When we look at those who are not in the Lord's church, we must look upon them with pity and with love and teach them with tenderness and care. Pray for their hearts that they would be turned. For the true strength is not in bullying Or pushing or yelling the true strength is in making common sense for people do not care how much we know until they know how much we care it is a truism it worked on me that's why I'm here there is a melting away and a breaking down of all barriers see many fail to meet God's thought And has been the causes of all the failures and the disasters of the past the awful wickedness which preceded the flood was brought about from the mingling of the holy seed of the people of the world the intermarriage of the children of god with the daughters of men that is the intermarriage with the faithful of god with those who were unfaithful that's why god warned the people of israel do not marry the heathen they will bring you down it's a lot easier to be pulled down and to pull up. Now there's a melting away and a breaking down of all barriers between the church and the world. And the end of it is going to be a condition of things as shocking and terrible as in the days of Noah. We must not, under any circumstances, compromise with the world. Not even a little bit. We make a stand for the truth upon God's word. We may be more popular with the world if we compromised on the truth, but we weren't put here to be men-pleasers. We're here to be God-pleasers, and those that truly seek God's word do not come to him for what they can get in entertainment value. They come to him to offer their service. They come to him for redemption from sin, and it is an honor and a privilege to serve the Holy One. It is a frightful thing to turn away from God. And we can see what happens in the world when people do. you see, God must have separated vessels. For he will not drink out of the devil's cups. And we must not only be his, but we must be his alone. We must bear his monogram and be his peculiar people we who would bear the name of Jesus must not play with the world. We must not intermarry with the world. We must not let it invade the very church of Christ and in the name of religion turn God's holy sanctuary into a place of social entertainment and sometimes indecent exhibitions that would even disgrace a theatre. These things have happened in the world. And it is absolutely shocking. When we think about Samson, we we think about what we must not do, looking at his example. We must not repeat the story, the account of Samson. For our end can only be the same at last to him. Blindness, bondage, paralysis and spiritual death. In 2 Corinthians six seventeen, we read, Wherefore come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. This is the comforting promise. Should not that embolden us with that strength? We see in Samson a picture of a supernatural life and a power that God can give to a consecrated body. Now, Samson was not a physical giant, at least there is no reason to suppose that he is. In many art forms, we, will, we see pictures of Samson and he has big muscles and he looks like Mr. Universe. In truth, he may well have looked more like Mr. Puniverse, but God's the one that gave him the strength. People were surprised at how strong he was, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger's in the 70s now, but you wouldn't want a thump from him. Or Lou Ferrigno, the Incredible Hulk, you wouldn't want a thump from him. Believe me, I've met him a few times. You don't want a thump from him. So nothing in the Bible says that they looked at Samson and thought, oh, here comes danger. They were surprised. The Philistines could not understand his supernatural strength. Where is this coming from? Where are his huge muscles? Why isn't he a giant? If he had been a giant like like Og or Shehan or Goliath of gigantic stature, they would easily have comprehended it. But he seems to have been a man of ordinary appearance, and his power was entirely superhuman. It was not through brawn or bone, but it was because of the divine life that possessed his being and filled his frame with the very strength of God. Just as the electric wire when filled with the current has in it the whole power of the battery and can turn the ponderous reels of a mighty factory so a human frame may be possessed with the power of God that even though they may be feeble like young David they can turn David into someone like the angel of the Lord. There's no doubt that David attributed his stupendous exploits entirely to the physical strength that came to him from Jehovah. His battles were all battles of faith and he could literally say in Psalm 1834, He teacheth my hands to war, so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. And so Samson was able to wrench asunder the jaws of the lion, the same way he would pull aside the jaws of a goat. He was able to carry it on his shoulders, the pillars and gates of Gaza with their weight of tons and walk with them 10 miles to Hebron and to lift up the pillars which supported the vast amphitheater of the pagan temple and literally tear the building to pieces by his bare arms. So still God is able to put his strength into a human frame. If wholly separated onto him so that it can resist the power, the power of the devil, the power of temptation, the power of influences of a poisonous climate, that can endure hardship and suffering and can go through life like Moses, like David, like Samson with unabated strength until life's work is done. But not only was Samson an example of wonderful physical power and God's strength in using a human, but also of God's supernatural working in the circumstances and the providences of life. When he was ready to faint with thirst after the victory of the Philistines, when he had slain a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey, he cried to God in his extremity, and God opened a fountain of water until he was satisfied. Brethren, we have a fountain of water. It is the holy word of God. Drink until you're satisfied. And if you love God, you will never be satisfied. Not all the oceans, waters of the earth could fill the satisfaction you get from God's holy word for a thirsty soul that stares, that looks and longs for him. I know a woman who told me that when she goes to sleep at night, it's hard for her to sleep. She's afraid of going to hell. She's wise. We should all be afraid of displeasing God. We should all strive to please him in every way we possibly can. And there are many that do believe that hell exists, but they're not willing to do what it takes to avoid it. Because they've been lied to. They've been told by people, you can do whatever you want. But that's not what God tells us. Samson lived a life of excess. Excess. He just loved to live the high life. And it brought him low. Our Lord Jesus said to his disciples All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, and lo, I am with you all the days, even unto the end of the age. Matthew 28 and verse 20. If we seek all power, you will not find it in the approval of men or women. You will not find it in a bottle. You will not find it in fame or the cheer of a crowd screaming towards you. You will find all power is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there you can rest. When you are right with God according to the gospel, you can sleep the sleep of an innocent babe, knowing that in Christ and walking in Christ and being cleansed from all sin in Christ, You are clean. You are pure. You are pure and sinless as that innocent babe in his sight. And no, we are not without sin. We fail in our lives. But we understand that sin needs to be repented of. We understand the folly of it. And we understand the glory that comes from being reconciled to God. This mighty Christ is able to do anything for us that we really need in the line of his purpose for us and the work he has committed to our hands. We see the withering touch of earthliness and sin. Very gradually did the poison insinuate itself into Samson's life. Very gradually did he allow the snare of temptation to weave its meshes around him and at last he was a bound and helpless captive in the power of his destroyer. First comes the visit to the enemy's country. He had no business to go down to Timnah in the first place, except that God might send him there as a soldier and as a judge to fight them. But he went, and then he looked, and then he loved, and then he longed, and then he lusted, and then disobeyed his parents' counsel, and he took the fatal step which linked his life with the daughters of the Philistines. Yet God did not forsake him immediately. Again and again he showed his power with the servant through a score of years and helped him out of all of his troubles and doubtless often spoke to his heart and warned him of his danger and his folly. But Samson still went on in the same self-indulgent course, only getting, as we always do, deeper and deeper into the mire of lust until at last we find him at Gaza in the house of a woman of ill repute. And at last, we see him in the Valley of Sorak, in the lap of Delilah, who represents the world's delights and the very abandonment of selfish pleasure. That's what he abandoned himself to. But even there, an instinct of self-preservation and peculiar sacredness seems to have lingered to the very last. This evil woman. Satan's masterpiece of temptation had been urged by the enemies of God, by the enemies of Samson, to find out the secret of his strength. You see, this is why I do not believe he was a man bulging with muscles. They would have thought that that was where his strength came from. And given glory to Samson, they'd have said, look at his muscles. Look at how strong this man is. But no, he was an ordinary man. Looked like an ordinary Israelite. And people wondered at his strength, knowing that it was not from him. It must have come from his God. Now, they had offered Delilah a bribe that's worth around $3,000 in our money, which in those days was worth 10 times that sum. If, if, it would secure her influence and honor among her people. And for this, she sold herself and determined that Samson would send himself to. With wily tact and womanly pleading, she began begging from him day to day to tell her his secret. Tell me, tell me. She nagged and nagged at him until at last, appealing to his nobler nature and his manly generous impulses to his love, she told him that if he loved her truly, he would trust her without reserve. It was his heart that betrayed him at last, though. Perhaps you think You did not mean any great wrong. You never intended to yield your principles, or your virtue, or your conscience. But they did get the better of you, Samson. You trusted somebody. And in a moment of impulse, you were lost. So poor Samson fell. So it is with the lost sheep that ever goes astray. Quite often, it is not a wolf. It is someone who does not mean any wrong. It's just a foolish sheep. It wanders, it forgets, it dallies, and it perishes all the same. Evil is wrought by want of thought, more than any man, more than any by want of heart. How tragic is the picture of Samson's last temptation and fatal fault. How the lingers of the devil, had the fingers of the devil, for his very heart, closer and closer, turned and and wrapped around it until at last they stole his secret and they crushed out his life. He knew that there was danger and he played with it day by day, pulling it off and still holding the citadel but letting the enemy come nearer and nearer. As he told her that they might bind him with green rites and he would be helpless and then she betrayed her true character, he might have seen the fiend in this so-called lover, as she called his cruel foes. At lastly, Samson sprang to his feet and tore his bonds asunder and drove them from his presence in dismay. Next, he told her that they might bind him with fresh cords and he would be helpless. And then again in the test, the cords would tear asunder. And she fell hysterically weeping and told her he did not love her. So she pleaded again and again, One trembles when they hear him talk of Nazarite locks and tells her that if she would weave them together, he would be bound and helpless. And so she weaves them and pins them in a knot and takes the pin to a weaver's loom to fasten them securely. And now she thinks she has him, And again, the ambush of men is sprung upon him. And again, Samson springs through the meshes of his snare and perhaps sneezes the pin of the loom to beat them from his presence. But how narrowly he has escaped, time and time again. He's playing with disaster. He's flirting with sin. And we must never do this. If he had but taken the warning. Oh, if he had but listened to the beat of his heart. When the spirit knocked. But a woman's tears and a woman's hysterical pleading at last conquered Samson's own weak heart. God's hour of long-suffering had reached its margin, not through Samson's triumph, but through Samson's failure. And the man who might have been a lighthouse on the shores of time must become a beacon on the sunken rock of the dangerous reef, warning others to avoid the place where he too was lost. And so at last the strong man bows, the surrender is made, the secret is told, and doubtless he exacted from her the most sacred pledge, and she vowed she would never tell it, nobody, Doubt as she swore that all he wanted that uh, want, he swore that she would keep his secret but she had him lulled to sleep and his locks were shaven and the enemy fell upon him samson rose as before and shook himself as other times and thought that he was as strong as ever he knew not that the lord had departed from him Yet samson's retribution was as terrible as a sin He lost his strength. He lost everything that he had fought for, that he believed he had at his his fingertips. He surrendered to temptation and he compromised with evil. Next, he lost his liberty. He was bound and helpless in the hands of his foes. When once we yield to the enemy, we have no power to keep from yielding again and again and again. Our defense is departed from us and we are given over to a reprobate mind to do those things that are not convenient. Romans 1.28 Eternal sin is the most terrible part of eternal punishment. We must not make the mistake of Samson. Do not flirt with sin thinking that we can master it. It is wily. The more you sin, the more you want to sin. I knew a man who was a drug addict. And he started small. And gradually graduated to harder drugs. The marijuana wasn't doing it for him anymore. So he went on to to cocaine. And then the cocaine wasn't doing it for him. So he moved on to heroin. This man... His skin was yellow from jaundice. He had AIDS, HIV. Almost every vein in his body had collapsed. He was blind in one eye from sticking a needle in it to try and get the drugs into him. You see, the more drugs he took, the more he needed to take to get the same high. And that's what results in an overdose. And people can overdose from sin. They can sin so much that it becomes as nothing to them. They lose their sight of the sin that they're in. And when we yield to sin and we yield to Satan, our eyes are put out by our enemies. And we cease to know the difference between right and wrong unless we turn to the Lord. Unless, like Samson, we turn to God in repentance. We turn back and turn away from this, this horror that would destroy us. Our once clear conception of God's high and holy will are blurred and blotted out and we wander in the darkness not knowing at what we stumble. He became a sport and a spectacle for his enemies and they used him to grace their own entertainments to be a public mockery at their events to honour their false gods and to put to shame the very name of the God Samson loved. You see the most horrible part of it It wasn't just that he brought himself low. It was that in the eyes of the heathen, he had brought the power of God Almighty low as well. The most terrible part of Samson's punishment was to hear the shouts of his enemies as they boasted of the triumphs of Dagon over Jehovah and the defeat of Samson and Samson's God. Not knowing all the while, it was Samson's sin and folly that caused all the shame to the name of God. And the cause that he, above all men, was sent to guard. But at last, repentance and contrition came. And in his humiliation, in his bondage to his enemies, to these heathen Philistines, in his sorrow, in the depths of his darkness, Samson at last awoke to the meaning of his life. And he asked God for one more chance, just one more chance to be true to his God. To prove his sincerity and the deep reality of the death of self, he was willing to sacrifice his very life in his last exploit. And he only asked of God that he might die in the service of his God, in the service of his country, and in the destruction of his enemies. That He would bring glory to God in his death. He was like the Roman nobleman that plunged fully armed into the chasm at the city gate, which none but he could fill. He was like the soldier who, having betrayed his colours, asked only that he might once more lead the forlorn hope on the battlefield and die with his colours in his bloody hand and his life laid down in the midst of his enemies. Our service is never worth anything until our life goes along with it. And everything is laid down, everything from the top of our head to our big toe, everything for God, even life itself, if God requires it. Samson has always, was always looking after his own pleasure, but now at the last he sees the light. He realizes he was not his own man at all. He was God's man. But here he is dead to self and ready for the noblest achievement of his life. God takes him at his word. And one day at the height of a great national carnival, while hundreds of thousands of Philistines nobles are crowding the galleries of the vast amphitheater, many thousands are upon the top of it looking down, making fun of Samson, the hero of Israel, making fun of the invisible God of Israel. Here we see this mighty roof, which was supported by two great pillars in the center and all were waiting for Samson to come forth and make sport of him like a clown in a circus. Samson's strength is given back to him for one last achievement, and gripping the mighty pillars with one stupendous effort, he tears them from their foundations, and with a crash of thunder and ten thousand cries of terror, the building is in ruins, and the proud boast of the Philistines is turned into a death shriek of despair. Samson is victor in his death, and has accomplished more by dying than he had done in all of his years of living. Beloved, there is much to learn from the account of Samson. Some of you have heard this before. Some of you are hearing this account for the very first time. But Samson was a great warrior who could have been far greater if he had trusted in the God of his strength. My friends, by Samson's death scene, let us learn to die to self and to sin. Let us learn from what Samson went through. That God can take ordinary people and do extraordinary things. But it is he that is achieving it. And all glory must go to him. And then we too shall, as the writer of the book of Hebrews writes, Hebrews eleven thirty four, Wax valiant in fight. Turn to fight the enemies of the aliens. And out of weakness be made strong. More than this, let us see in Samson's death the type of a greater than Samson whose death accomplished also the destruction of his enemies and ours and taught us both how to live and how to die. He died for us that we might live and he died for us that we might die and in the power of his cross with its holy sign translated into every fibre of our being and every service of our life Let us go forth to live for him who died for us, for our glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that there was nothing remarkable about Christ, about the way he looked. He didn't stick out from the crowd. He was able to mingle with them. But it didn't make any difference to the calling upon his life and his willingness to fight for his heavenly Father's will. It always strikes me that when he had the opportunity to turn away knowing what was going to face and what he was going to face in Jerusalem a death far more horrifying than what Samson faced that he chose to go to Jerusalem he chose to go to the cross and he chose to do it out of his love for us i've known many people that say george you know that God doesn't want to have anything to do with me. Why would God want to have anything to do? Why could he love somebody like me? I'm nothing. And I tell him he does. I tell them God does love them. He loves them so much he paid a king's ransom for their soul. That's how much he loves them. The Lord Jesus Christ is an extraordinary person. He is fully God and he is fully man and he is our divine redeemer. He is our king and we can rest in him as we can in none other. In Philippians 3 verse 10, Paul writes, In the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. And we're baptized for the forgiveness of our sins we were baptized into Christ. Into his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And through him to glory and victory and all praise to God. In Acts 2.38, the Apostle Peter went talking to many people in Jerusalem, even those who had called for Christ's crucifixion, and they asked, what must we do? He told them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins so they could be forgiven of their sins. In Galatians 3.27, we're told, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The only way to be in Christ is to be baptized into him. That is how we contact the blood of his redemption. Samson is a great example to us through his life, through the mistakes he made in his life and through the good decision to repent and to turn to God and to be used by him in any way God chose to use him. You see, God can take broken people such as us and make us into his own sons and daughters. And that is a beautiful and true thought. So if you're not a Christian this evening, I beg you before it is too late, become one. Become a child of God. It will be a fight, but it's a worthy and noble fight for a a worthy and noble Lord. And if you are a Christian and you've wandered, you can come back. While yet you may, you can come back to him and he will take you back. You see, our God is not like the lifeless, man-made images of the Philistines. Our God is real. And we are made in his image. And we are made with a purpose. And we must surrender our lives to his purpose if we are to truly please. If you need to come forward, if you need anything at all, please do as we stand and sing the song of invitation. Thank you. Just as I am, I've gone free.